0: and Good morning, Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with.
1: Yeah, Luke Savage. Hi, everyone. Uh, you know, Will, before we turn on the mics, was like, uh, oh, I've got something. And I thought to myself, I hope to God he's not just going to do the catchphrase from Good Morning Vietnam. Ooh, but- ooh I'm doing the
0: catchphrase <laughs> from Good Morning Vietnam. <laughs> problem with doing a Robin Williams impression is you get back down to his level. Maybe the of.
1: problem is that you're not a comedic genius. You're right. I'm like, I'm the yeah.
0: Bruno Kirby in this <laughs> equation. I'm not Robin Williams. Listen, we got a lot more Williams talk coming coming hot off our 500th episode that was just on Patreon. The critically
1: acclaimed people are saying it's the greatest podcast episode ever recorded. People are saying it.
0: And we put an additional 30 to 45 minutes more work than we normally (laughs) do into it, having a sketch that started it. We love sketches, don't we? So check that out at patreon.com slash Michael and us, along with all of our recent episodes. Uh, We're also coming hot on the heels of our Patch Adams episode last week. And, well, we'll get to the movie, but we have a demon we need to exercise and his name is robin williams so oh th- that that may occupy us on the podcast for a little bit uh before we get into the movie though i actually have some political thoughts you know some, really? some political it's, news
1: it's kind of surprised to hear you know uh, you're, you're kind of more of like a film guy i think
0: you know i'm i'm kind of like will rogers you know i look at the world from a slightly <laughs> askew point of view i i fire shots at people all over the spectrum So uh, at any given moment in Canada, wherever there's a liberal government, there's always some kind of spending scandal. And on the federal level right now, the spending scandal is around the ArriveCan app. Oh, uh, the app that we all know and love. You seen this? Did you, ever, you did have, heard about do this? You have to use the ArriveCan app. I absolutely, oh. I have uh, the ArriveCan app. For those who are not Canadians, is uh, an app on your phone that you had to use, sort of as the lockdowns were lifting. Yeah, in order to travel across a border. Exactly, you have to fill it out. So the scandal is that the original budget for the app was about eighty thousand dollars. The final budget ended up being about. million dollars.
1: I've I've heard figures as high as 80 million.
0: And this is a very typical kind of liberal party spending scandal. There's always something like this happening wherever there's an incumbent liberal government. You remember the 200 million dollar gas plants that brought down the Wynn government. So conservative leaders are always very good at finding these incidents of government waste and making them representative of a broader need for belt tightening. And the incumbent Justin Trudeau government has, of course, been doing a very good job responding to this, creating a counter narrative. Um, in an article I was reading in the Toronto Star this week, Justin Trudeau was quoted as saying, while we were focusing on protecting Canadians in every possible way we could, the Conservatives were peddling conspiracy theories about vaccinations.
1: <laughs> oh, man, it's the, year of, remember, remember Lord, that? the year of our You remember that? year of our 2024 and we're still doing like COVID
0: culture war stuff that's how much our politics are running on fucking empty this is kind of what i'm getting at and this is a completely unrelated thing a figure far less consequential in politics than justin trudeau but uh you've heard about seth MacFarlane, right you know
1: <laughs> well f- i mean f- I, I know of him but stu-
0: he's stewie the what's, baby what's he been up to lately well I, l- I don't seek out real time with bill maher it fi- it, finds <laughs> it finds me you, yeah. and if you're scrolling your social media sometimes you'll see a clip from that show that people are getting upset at and this week. It was Seth MacFarlane talking about alleged young voters who are allegedly gravitating towards Donald Trump, allegedly over Israel-Palestine.
1: I, I mean, look, and, and, I, I have not seen any polling to indicate that that's
0: happening. But Donald Trump is outperforming Biden in the polls. Yeah, at, because people are, because not because
1: people are switching to Donald Trump, but because people are saying they're not going to vote for Biden,
0: or they're not certain they are. And so you're on, you're on real time with Bill Maher. What are your, what are you, what was your muscle memory? compel you to do what are the reflexive moves that you do when you're on that show you say well the young are doing their purity politics Uh and uh, they got to be brought in line so uh, mcfarlane said you're giving up on everything that supposedly is important to you and putting it all on the line for this one issue (laughs) this one issue by the way being genocide (laughs) But these these two stories coming into my Will Rogers-esque purview at the same time filled me with a great sense of malaise, this kind of feeling of goddamn, you know, In our discourse right now, it seems that there are only two options. You can be Alex Jones, or you can be Greg Proops. (laughs) And there's, you know, ever since the Bernie Sanders movement was effectively neutralized, you know, Canada has a third major political party representing the left. I, I look forward to seeing evidence of it again sometime. The options in Canada are, you can be Pierre Polyev, or you can be, you know, sanctimonious late style Justin Trudeau. And in the US, you can be, a hooting and braying mega chad or you can be the right. most the most sanctimonious <laughs> yeah, yeah. the most like Rob Reiner the most like <laughs> mm, interesting you only care about Gazans getting killed uh, where were you when Sudan happened <laughs> now we owned you with your own logic and you have to vote for Joe Biden oh my god. And, and I would just what I'm feeling right now is just a great sense of how are we going to build a third way it's <laughs> the question I'm always asking how can we recover what are the venues what are the fucking strategies we can use because that same Toronto Star article noted that Canadian millennials two to one are more likely to vote for Pierre Paul. You have the Justin Trudeau. Right. Well, he,
1: here is some version of that phenomenon is actually happening, but there's a very simple reason for that. And it's just that the liberals are presiding over an absolutely hideous cost of living crisis and Pierre Polyev has managed to for now at least rein in a lot of his kind of weirder or more eccentric ideological instincts and just talk about how like young people can't afford rent people are lining up at food
0: banks people there are can't only afford a, a home few options it's well we've had the devil we know for 9 years Well
1: there's there's another important piece of context here for why perhaps uh, the NDP isn't capitalizing so much on the malaise with the government even though the NDP in many cases has taken you know like the proper left-wing position on grocery prices being too high you know that kind of thing some of the MPs have been pretty good on Gaza as well the party's position at the federal level you know there was a press conference the other day where they're you know they're calling on the government to recognize a Palestinian state immediately so
0: I wasn't thrilled to see Jagmeet join in the pile on about the alleged anti-semitic protest outside Mount Sinai Hospital last week I was very disappointed in him
1: yeah I mean people for- are aware of this kind of Toronto uh, micro-controversy last week. Pretty much our entire political class in the span of a few hours, lined up behind the idea that the Mount Sinai Hospital had been targeted by this march that was actually on its way to the U.S. consulate, which is right down the street. And there have been marches that have passed that hospital many times, many times in the last four months. Yeah. I mean, in this case, it does seem like one or more people kind of like climbed onto the hospital, like waving flags, that kind of thing. The narrative that quickly set in and was immediately reinforced by uh, the political class basically across the spectrum was just simply not true. But uh, there's an important piece of context, so about why the NDP is maybe not capitalizing on the cost of living crisis as much. And it's that for the past several years, it's been in a confidence and supply agreement with the liberals. So basically, the NDP several years ago said, on confidence motions, so in a parliamentary system, a government can, you know, rise or fall on these motions of confidence, which are often budgetary items, though they can be other things as well. The liberals don't have a majority. And so the NDP basically said, well, we will keep your government alive in exchange for you doing this, you know, laundry list of things. You know, we don't have time here to go into everything that was was on the list. We might have a conversation about it again uh, next month because there's a deadline or an ultimatum coming up about the Liberals implementing some form of national pharmacare. The NDP says it will withdraw support if that doesn't happen. Again, there, the kind of wranglings are uh, pretty complex and I don't want to, you know, don't, don't at me if you're a Canadian listening to this. We're going to come back to this with more detail I suspect in the near future. But so this agreement which is not a coalition agreement like there are no NDP cabinet ministers the NDP hasn't joined the government has been a boon to the conservatives because they can just say the NDP liberal coalition which is the phrase they're using all the time and they can just sort of blame anything that's bad on the liberals like the NDP kind of gets tarred with it and it does make it harder I think for the NDP in parliament to criticize a government where it's like all right well the government's in bed with billionaires and grocery CEOs and the pharmaceutical industry and it's like okay well you know because of this agreement you also have to then go and vote yay on their budget or whatever, you know? So, you know, that, that agreement, that may be coming to a head uh, soon. We'll we'll have to see. It's possible the NDP will extract uh, real concessions from the Liberals next month when it comes to the issue of pharmacare. Again, we'll have to see. There's probably not going to be an election. I mean, it might not even happen next year. I, I think the Liberals, their re-election strategy at this point is wait for people to get scared of Donald Trump so that you can say that Pierre Polyev is Donald Trump. I think that's kind of the last thing they have in. In their pocket. But uh, Will, I did not expect uh, you of all people to bring up the arrive can scandal off the top. And I feel like we should spend a little more time on that. Because the point you made about how this is like a classic liberal scandal is absolutely right. You know, you talked about the gas plants in, in Ontario, which I don't remember to what extent Kathleen Wynne, former premier, got tied up in that. But yeah, Dalton McGinty, the previous liberal premier, his government just for years, every time they had a scandal, it had to do with a public Private partnership, some form of you know contracting out government services, and some of the brain trust of that government are also the brain trust of the Trudeau government. So that's important to note. The Liberals also love kind of uh, commissions where they get some kind of expert who's supposed to be kind of objective to then give them the result they want, where they can say, "Hey, uh, somebody looked into it, and he or she agrees with us." And then it'll turn out, well, yeah, they're on the board of the Trudeau Foundation or something. There was the We Charity scandal, which was all about. Giving this very lucrative contract to the uh, We Charity, and which you know Trudeau and his family had uh, you know very various connections to the guys who ran that. Uh, actually, we did a whole episode on the We Charity scandal back in the before time. You can find that on our Patreon.
0: And Justin Trudeau's sort of reflexive move across nine years of governance, and and even before, has always been to say some version of, "Well, uh, my opponents uh, want you to think I'm too woke. Well, uh, what what if I what if I told you that it's them who need to wake up?" <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah, to, yeah. to white supremacy I mean
1: they love this shit Like I'm a masochist again I For 10 years I didn't watch Parliament ever And I watch Question Period a few times a week now It is kind of useful because it's just It's just basically theater at this point It is useful for sort of seeing like If there was an election today what would the sort of campaign narratives be And yeah like the Tories On their better days You know better in the, asen- in the sense of being politically effective They're talking about the cost of living And the liberals is just always this You know sanctimonious bullshit About how well on this side of the house We believe in evidence We don't believe in conspiracy theories It's very to use a somewhat lazy shorthand It's very like Aaron Sorkin They absolutely love that shit But, you know, not as much as they love P3s, public-private partnerships, contracting out government services, and also hiring massive teams of consultants. This one didn't really become a scandal, but it definitely tickled something in me. I'm forgetting the figure now of how much it turned out, how many, God knows how many millions of dollars they'd paid out to McKinsey. Like, it's very funny. You want to talk about fat in government. Like, let's say I actually bought the argument that conservatives have been making about the state for decades, where it's like, oh yeah, it's it's self-maximizing. There's all this waste and duplication. It's like, like, buddy, what do you think this army of like lobbyists and contractors and consultants, what do you think that is? That all comes from the private sector, and the government contracting that stuff out was supposed to be the thing that eliminated the waste. If you want to eliminate the waste, what if we just had the government do stuff? How about that? <laughs> What if people were paid like normal salaries that were high in like a public sector sense where it's like, oh, yeah, this person managed the team of like 2000 people and they get paid, I don't know, 200 grand a year instead of like the private sector equivalent of that, where it's like, oh, this person is part of a consultancy of three listed in an LLC in Delaware. They've never made an app before. And for some reason, we're paying them like, I don't know, $200 trillion <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Seems to me that's a little more wasteful.
0: And by the way, I just want to say the Arrive Can app,
1: was great
0: oh my god it's really well 80 million dollars well spent
1: i mean like the conservatives are smart to go after this i mean i shouldn't give them too much credit because it's such an obvious give me but it's like not only was this very obviously a boondoggle it's like this like shitty app this you know this fucking stupid website you had to visit totally perfunctory really is the kind of thing that if you looked at it you'd be like well how could this possibly cost more than like ten thousand dollars to make this and not only did we find it it cost a whole lot more than that but also it fucking sucked to use everybody hates it even people who were trying to take proper covid precautions and like we're wearing a mask on a plane well, and, you, you
0: pull like, it up and and the questions are do you have covid and, <laughs> yeah, and you say no yeah, yeah and then, yeah. And, then cool they, and then they and then they let you back in.
2: Yeah. <laughs> i yeah. cheered when humphrey was chosen my faith in the system restored and i'm glad that the commies were thrown out From the AFL-CIO bar And I love Puerto Ricans and Negroes As long as they don't move next door So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal
1: well, to go back, well, to your, uh, your kind of main theme here, you were talking about kind of the malaise you're feeling, the dispiriting environment we live in right now, where it seems like many people don't even want you to be able to express discontent. Like, forget doing anything about anything. You're not even allowed to be mad about things that are perfectly legitimate to be mad or upset about. Like, in the American context in particular, like, Team Blue earnestly feels like making demands of the people that are nominally supposed to be there to represent you, or that's what they claim, that that is like, that's violence, you know, I mean, there's a bit of a digression. But have you seen this like thing Biden's been doing recently, where when he talks about abortion, he he qualifies it by saying, I'm not for abortion on demand.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like,
1: like you are not even allowed to be mad about (laughs) that. But so I, I completely agree with you. I feel, uh, yeah, the same malaise, the same discontent. And I'd cause to think about it recently because I wrote a story for uh, Ricochet, bilingual Canadian publication people should check out, about what uh, Canada's liberals are doing around the housing crisis, or rather what they say they're doing. Now, this is the kind of thing where even me, even a hardened cynic like me, when I saw the rhetoric that they were using around this policy I'm going to tell you about in a moment, I kind of thought, all right, well, that's like, I guess, desperate times breed desperate measures like you know I'm sure that it's probably not going to bring rents down really or whatever but you know this this all sounds good now if you're listening to this in a city or town basically anywhere in the world at the moment you know that uh, folks the rent is too damn high and Canada's leaders want you to know uh, they're doing something about it uh, there was honest to God a post on a Facebook marketplace in Toronto recently where for a bargain of only $900 a month also with a deposit of uh, I think about $2,000 uh, you could get half a bed that was the posting. According to RBC Economics, a hotbed of radical analysis, uh, Canada's experienced uh, its highest annual increase in rent growth in history. Just last year, homelessness is predictably up as well because there aren't enough houses, rents are too high, so people are being driven into the streets. That's what happens. And yeah, after, you know, months of sort of trying to punt away the problem, I mean, the Liberals uh, really have not gone without, I mean, they've not gone like a week without some kind of a scandal or some gaffe that they have to walk back or, God, I mean there was one last week where the minister of infrastructure just sort of seemed to imply this is just like a dumb thing that happens to a scandal prone government that has no reason for being anymore. Uh he he made this gaffe where he was like, "Oh yeah, we're not going to do any more federal funding for roads," which is just so stupid because like there's literally like I don't think there's like a single body in the country, whether it's like a chamber of commerce or a business association or a trade union or a citizens group or a neighborhood watch or is there anyone who's against roads? It, it's
0: funny a guy- government saying oh they want us to cut back on waste they want us to cut back on spending uh well well yeah we're, we're gonna do it <laughs> yeah yeah no, no more unnecessary
1: road yeah I hope you like those potholes peasants <laughs> but so uh you know that's just an example of the kind of thing they'd be doing every week and uh, one of my favorite things last summer when they were juggling like four other scandals was uh, justin trudeau saying well housing's not
0: really a federal area of responsibility it's like it's like literally just passing the buck i like when the one move in your kata though is to say well <laughs> (laughs) well Well, that sounds Trump like, or that's not that sounds like a conspiracy theory, because these old, you know, 2016 style moves start to fall apart when it's in a completely different context than 2016. You can't just keep pressing the same button over and over again.
1: Yeah, I mean, I swear to God, I'll I'll come back to the housing point in a second. But I swear to God, there was a whole meta debate in Parliament recently over the liberals have been uh, trying to pass this free trade deal with Ukraine. And the conservatives are against it, because they say it contains a carbon tax <laughs> like So folks that's where we're at I don't think I need to offer Any more exposition on that <laughs> But so look, uh, the Liberals, you know, they stepped in on housing over and over again, and uh, they want us to know that uh, we're doing something about the problem. Justin Trudeau a few weeks ago, homes are for Canadian families to live in, not for foreign investors to build financial portfolios with. Christia Freeland, Minister of Finance, agrees. She condemned the use of housing as, quote, a financial asset class by foreigners, adding that the government was, quote, using all possible tools to make housing more affordable across the country. So the Liberals passed this bill in 2022. It's called the Prohibition on the Purchase of Residential Property by Non-Canadians Act and uh, in January I guess so they could get a headline and they could do tweets like the ones I just read um, they just extended it to uh, 2027 and it basically does exactly as it sounds foreign buyers and companies are not allowed to purchase residential properties for a time Uh, now I looked into it a bit and uh, nominally center left parties around the world this is their new favorite thing Uh, Keir Starmer unveiled a policy similar to this Uh, recently he's allegedly going to campaign on it in the next uh, UK election uh, New Zealand's government put something like this on the books in 2018. And like, this sounds good, right? I mean, I was kind of uh, taken aback by the language and those statements from uh, Trudeau and Freeland there, where they were like, oh, yeah, housing shouldn't be a financial asset. It's like, wow, yeah, that's true. I I agree with that. That sounds pretty good. Now, uh, here's why they're doing this. And uh, here's why I won't do anything. First of all, there's a whole bunch of carve-outs in the law. It doesn't apply to, like, bigger multi-unit buildings. Or if it's outside of a major metropolitan area, it doesn't count. So apparently, foreign uh, real estate speculation is bad. But if it's in, like, I don't know, Peterborough, it's fine, you know? But also, and this is the really important point, according to the data I could find, I mean, the most recent data I could find was from 2020 Statistics Canada, the residential housing market in Canada, the rate of foreign ownership is somewhere between 2 and 6%, okay? It's not very significant. Uh, there's a professor at the University of Western Ontario, Diana Mock, who works on housing, and she says the law is more of a political gesture than an effective tool, which is absolutely right. But I did find this a little bit interesting to write about because Trudeau and Freeland and other representatives of the government did kind of infuse their rhetoric with a bit of ideology. And they did say, well, housing shouldn't be used as like an asset by foreigners. The Problem is, this begs the question, well, why should it be, why should it be an asset at all? <laughs> why does the passport of the person doing the speculation matter? Isn't the speculation itself what matters. And the thing is, they're never going to do anything about that. Uh, so this is like a classic example of government by, you know, political management. This is government by comms. This is the kind of policy that anxious people in the PMO or the Ministry of Finance will have come up with because they're like, oh, man, uh, the focus groups tell us people don't like when they have to pay like 10 times more rent than they did five years ago. So what can we do that, that sounds good? It's like, oh, uh, uh, banning foreigners from buying residential properties. People are going to love that. It really is a case of like a policy that exists so that you can pretend you're doing something about a problem. And so that in this case, you can even kind of gesture at what the actual structural root of the problem is, but you're still not going to fucking do anything about it. And so I guess what I'm coming to here, just to to kind of return to the overall theme of this discussion, digging into this story a bit and and writing about it, the version of the malaise I felt was just, we know what the problems are, we know the roots of the problems, we have this whole vast machinery of like the state and public policy that should allow us to like do something about it. And yet a government that's sinking in the polls with a deeply unpopular prime minister, so unpopular they may have to replace him before the next election. You know, you know, replace him with a real, you know, populist firebrand like I don't know, Christia Freeland who I'm sure will turn things around for them. This government is so wedded to neoliberal ideology that they won't even do things that are popular and that would improve their poll numbers. They just don't believe in it. They genuinely think that like when the Bank of Canada raises interest rates, that that's just like a science that at the Bank of Canada, there's, I don't know, a room full of these like banker technicians who are all pulling the levers just at exactly the right angle because they have like the necessary knowledge of financial alchemy to know just how much we need to suppress wages in this particular moment so that we can get inflation under control or whatever. They're so wedded to that that they won't do anything about uh, this problem. We talked on an episode a few months back very very similar thing they've done around uh, grocery prices where, yeah, the minister is going to send a sternly worded letter to uh, the CEO of Loblaws or something to say, uh, hey, stop charging quite so much for bread. It's a little expensive there. But, you know, when they're asked, are you going to put in price controls? Are you going to do a windfall tax? No, they're absolutely not going to do any of that stuff. Instead, the minister is going to go on TV and he's going to say, I mean, this is what he said. Canadians need to vote with their wallets. You know, if, if, if Loblaws is gouging you, I don't know, go to one of the other fucking three supermarket chains and get gouged there. And then eventually prices will come down. We're sure as hell not going to do anything about it. And again, the reason for that is just ideology. Like the state has tools to intervene in these areas. They just won't do it because they actually don't believe that the state has any right to like put a windfall tax on supermarket chains or whatever. They don't believe that the state has any right to, you know, crack down on uh, landlordism in any kind of uh, systemic way. Really thinking through how little uh, public opinion, popular pressure, democratic pressure of any kind—like how unresponsive uh, most institutions, even nominally democratic ones, are to those things these days—it's uh, it's pretty dispiriting.
2: God! from the Delta to the DMZ. It's 0600. What's the O stand for? Oh, my God. It's Mr. Leo. You know, this whole camouflage thing for me doesn't work very well. Why is that? Well, because you go in the jungle, I can't see you. If you're going to fight, clash. That is not what we program here. Surprise, surprise, surprise. You are not funny. You're not going to last long. <laughs> Boy, do I have a surprise for you. Good morning, Vietnam. In 1965, Adrian Cronauer was sent to do the impossible, I was sent here on very strict orders from a current. What the hell's going on here? His mission to build morale. Where are you from? Uh, Off of uh, Cleveland, man. Obviously, Vietnam's not that much of a change for you. His strategy keep them laughing. If someone is not telling the truth, you say that they are full of. <laughs> His problem staying out of trouble. You want to stick to playing normal modes of music. Jim Neighbors, Matovani, Percy Faith. Percy Faith, good.
0: Good Morning Vietnam works as a straight comedy and as a Vietnam-era mash, and even the movie's love story has its own bittersweet integrity. But they used to tell us in writing class that if we wanted to know what a story was really about, we should look for what changed between the beginning and the end. In this movie, Cronauer changes. War wipes the grin off his face. His humor becomes a humanitarian tool, and not simply a way of keeping him talking and us listening. In a strange, subtle way, Good Morning Vietnam is not so much about war as it is about stand-up comedy. About the need that compels people to get up in front of a room and try to make us laugh. To control us. Why do comics do that? Because they need to have their power proven and vindicated. Why do they need that? Because they're the most insecure of Earth's people. Just listen to their language. They're going to kill us unless they die out there. How do you treat low self-esteem? By doing esteemable things and then saying, hey, I did that. What happens to Robin Williams in this movie? Exactly that. By the end, he doesn't wisecrack all the time because he doesn't need to. He no longer thinks he's the worthless, although bright, fast, and funny sack of crap that got off the plane. In the early scenes, the character's eyes are opaque. By the end, you can see what he's thinking.
1: That's what Will would be saying if he was Pulitzer Prize winning writer and critic Roger Ebert. And also, what he'd be saying if he'd never seen a movie before in his <laughs> entire life?
0: What the fuck was that? I had to do a couple of takes of that because there are there are bits of that. It's pretty what? hard to get through, man, with <laughs> a straight
1: face. Like
0: because, on well, our Patch well, Adams well, episode
1: recently, we were praising Siskel and Ebert for trashing that movie. So of course, we went to see. Well, what did they think about Good Morning Vietnam, a movie that's
0: hardly better?
1: I mean, well, first of all, it's the same. It's yeah. literally the same exact same movie, just made like ten years earlier. But I actually think was even harder for me to watch. The other reason we looked up Siskel and Ebert is because usually, you know, we're pretty practiced at this. You know, we've seen, Will and I have seen a lot of movies. We've talked about them on a lot of podcast episodes. Usually, even if I don't like something or if it doesn't scan for me, I'm at least able to kind of get at some kernel of, like, I understand what the cultural potency of this was, even if I don't like it. This movie did absolutely nothing for me. I don't understand how anybody thought it was funny. There was not a single funny thing in the movie. Patch Adams. Adams had a bunch of unintentional moments of comedy. This movie did not even have that. I was just waiting. I was just praying the whole time for Robin Williams to be sent to the front
0: so that he could be killed by the Viet Cong. That's all I wanted. Yeah, if you really wanted to help the war effort, maybe you should have gone looking for landmines or something. <laughs> so yeah, good morning, Vietnam. I mean, what can you say about this movie? This movie... I mean, it sucks. <laughs> Patch Adams is, is and was a bit of a joke, but this movie <laughs> made uh, $123 million domestically. It was one of the top box office hits of its year. It was the fourth highest grossing film of 1987. It is to this day probably one of Robin Williams' signature movies. I do feel the need when we talk about Robin Williams because emotions always run high when you talk about Robin Williams. People cherish their memories of Robin Williams. That's and, fine. And I the
1: res- man did good stuff. I respect that. This is
0: not good stuff. No. A lot of the stuff he did was not
1: good stuff. It was actually really saccharine and <laughs> yes. bad and cloying stuff. And I think it's been <laughs> 10 years
0: and we can finally start to speak honestly this about this. This movie
1: is like, the word boomer boomerism as a pejorative signifier manifest and this, i
0: hate yes. it so
1: much i hate everything it represents i hated watching it i hate thinking about it and uh yeah next week i think we should do the dead poet society
0: yeah so so boomerism this is the word that kept coming up for us when we were watching this movie because this is everything in the white middle to upper middle class liberal boomer conception of the world right yes. here like yes. all the people and, and hashtag not
1: all boomers will's being very of We're course. being very specific here
0: uh but the people who are running the world right now the people who have a say in gaza right now all love this movie i guarantee
1: well you're being pretty generous about the age of some of those people Well,
0: <laughs> you're right some- i mean Bi-
1: joe biden was literally born closer to the presidency of abraham lincoln than his own that's not made up it's a fact look it up right now do the math but no, you're a- you're absolutely right. This is the perfect movie that would be enjoyed by people who have the conception of the 1960s that Joe Biden himself has, where it's like, oh, I came out of the civil rights movement. Oh, yeah. You- if you look into that, you know, you kind of unturn a few rocks. It's like, well, I actually worked at a pool one summer. I volunteered there. There were some uh, black patrons at the pool. Or, you know, the thing in that awful Hillary Clinton Hulu documentary where in the intro credits, there's like a sort of 60s montage where it's like there's people marching and it's like okay, but Hillary wasn't marching. She was a Goldwater girl. Like, what What the fuck are you talking about? And it's like, the point is, she was there. And that's what this movie is. It is a movie for people who tell themselves, it's like, I was part of the counter. Damn it, I am part of the counter culture. And it's like- When my dad liked Perry Como,
0: uh, I was <laughs> it, listening to the Beatles.
1: Yeah, it's like, in the 60s, I occasionally read The Nation and I voted for Hubert Humphrey. What do you want from me?
0: My <laughs> uncle and I got into a very heated debate about Martin Luther King once. My uncle uh, thought he was a beep, beep, beep. And I thought uh, he made some really good points. And look, I also think I, Ma- I Malcolm I, X went a little too far. Yeah, yes, you know, but... King,
1: King kind of jumped the shark when he started talking about like socialism and yeah. that kind of stuff. But he was right that we should feel bad about the war in Vietnam. Yeah. Know?
0: And I mean, thank God I was too young to have been drafted.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, you know, I was basically part of the resistance to empire because uh, occasionally I would turn on the radio and i would hear the cow sills or
0: whatever and and you know who i don't like today is richard nixon that the the president you're allowed to dislike the officially designated bad president
1: and look i don't like some of those you know moral majority people that are hanging out around reagan but i mean look you can't deny the man's gotten our economy back on track and our streets
0: are safe again he he, (laughs) he's a great
2: communicator
0: and it's a shame what's happened to giuliani because he really cleaned up time's Square, you know <laughs> yeah. so that's this movie this movie also reminded me of that onion headline i'm quite eccentric within accepted societal norms yes yes uh, because this is another movie about robin williams courageous war for laughter always <laughs> yeah. going into environments where the margaret dumonts of the world are saying absolutely no laughter in here <laughs>
1: Yeah, Robin Williams is always fighting the proverbial church elders, whoever he is, and he's doing so with the power of laughter. Now, we've basically given you our thesis on the movie. and yeah, now, you can turn it off now. W- Will fine. and I are now going to show you our work. Now, when the film opens, it's 1965, you know, back when the war was was basically good because it was liberals that were doing it.
0: <laughs> well, it was well-meaning, you know, it's like, have you ever heard of a little <laughs> thing called the domino theory? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, we'll come back to that, actually, when we get to the end of the movie. But uh, we're introduced to Robin Williams as airman second class adrian cronauer now i'm not sure which flight school airman second class cronauer attended but his main skill seems to be talking into a tin can i don't think we ever see him fly a plane once in the movie he doesn't seem to know anything about you know aeronautics or like yeah. uh, i don't really know why let's
0: just say i wish he went to the john mccain school of aircraft <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, now we're introduced to him and you know he's a military guy so you might think he'd be sort of one of those you know upright sorts you know uh kind of serious you know, there's a lot of gravity this situation it's 1965 you know the war is no joke but um you know we, we learn very early on that you know he's not like the other girls uh, you know he's an army guy but he doesn't wear his dress uniform and he likes to dish out the occasional bit of snark well Luke humor is how we deal
0: with trauma <laughs> oh you know God, dude, this, have you ever thought of that this fucking movie dude, first... let's get Dr. Patch in here to tell us about <laughs> how laughter releases endorphins <laughs> yeah, yeah or David Brent
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know the the movie like i swear to god like half of this movie which this movie is two hours long there's not Oof. more than 45 minutes of stuff here okay we're introduced to robin williams we learn everything salient there is about this character which is not very much right away because he gets onto the radio he goes into the recording studio and uh they've got a whole bunch of records there and he takes one down from the shelf and like his chaperone is like oh no uh, uh. not
0: not that shelf yeah. that's the contraband shelf
1: yeah and but he but he's he's very transgressive you know he He doesn't play the records that he's told to play. He plays the other records that are in the same room adjacent to the records he's supposed to play. You know, uh, they have
0: them there so they can
1: understand the enemy. That's right. The powers that be are like, uh, oh, it's only Dean Martin on U.S. Army radio. And he's like, no, no, no. Have you ever heard of like the five most popular albums or songs that were on the radio in 1965? This is how much Robin Williams riles up the powers that be. He lands in Saigon. He walks right over to the USAF radio station and he puts on some top 40 fucking hits okay so this
0: guy's not fucking around there's nothing the establishment fears more than van morrison <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. oh 600 what's the o stand for oh my god it's early speaking of early how about that crow magnum marty drywitz thank you marty for silky smooth sound make me sound like peggy lee good morning vietnam what the heck is that supposed to mean i don't know lieutenant i guess it means good morning uh, vietnam and who gave anyone permission to program modern music?
1: Freddy and the Dreamers! We also get introduced to the other part of the Robin Williams character, which is, uh, he's, he's funny, okay? Or, he's funny, trademark. He's never actually funny in this movie, but the movie wants us to know, it lets
0: us know that he's funny. This movie does an incredible job attempting to gaslight the audience. Yes,
1: yes, it it constantly thro- throughout it constantly serves up these reaction shots of all the people around him you know the non-prudes the lower tier officers all just fucking hooting and guffawing and that really is the film saying yeah just so you know you the viewer this is funny you
0: well, will laugh well you were saying you were having trouble understanding like what chord this movie struck and i actually thought it was kind of easy to um interpret in that sense please enlighten me yeah you see <laughs> yeah. well robin williams a little more novel at the time people hadn't quite cottoned on to his shtick yet. <laughs> and uh, he was very manic. It, this is the style of humor. It's not it's, There's no jokes. The humor
1: is talking really fast and doing silly voices and then sometimes references. doing
0: racist voices,
1: too. Like, and, that's it. Uh,
0: what, a sample of his jokes was he said, uh, oh, the Vatican is coming out with a new merchandising line. They're selling Pope on a Rope. Oh, new report from East Germany. The East Germans say the Berlin
1: Wall was a fraternity prank. Amazing. Yeah, Great yeah. stuff. Um, Classic gags.
0: Well, a lot of Robin Williams talent as a comedian was just like the confidence of the presentation. You know, nobody talked that fast. If you look at some of his early stand up, I mean all of his stand up across his career like has the same problem that this movie has, which is that it's all sound and fury signifying nothing. Right. But when I he's mean, some some of it's probably funny. Some right? of it's funny. Yeah. And like when he's younger and he's a little more outrageous and uh, you know, like style goes some way. Yeah, you know you know you're actually
1: you are stirring a memory in me which is I think someone once showed me some early Robin Williams stand up and I was kinda surprised by how vulgar it was. Yeah. And like, yeah, it was it was funny. It was he's good. Like,
0: there's one. There's one bit I remember where it's like like it wasn't
1: Eddie Murphy raw. But it well, was, like, you know. well, yeah. Well, there was like
0: there's one bit that he had where he's talking about like. Trying to get his penis to work when he's on cocaine, and it's like him having a dialogue with his penis. I don't know. Like when you see him do it, when he's given the space to do that sort of material, it's funny.
1: And you couldn't put that in this movie because the audience for it, truly, or at least the kind of Praetorian guard that this movie needed to succeed at the box office, was like a type of you know prudish liberal suburbanite who, yeah, like may or may not have been a Reagan Democrat and was like, yeah, very prudish, but wanted to tell themselves that they weren't. And if you'd put that in the movie, they actually would have found it. Pretty pretty off-putting
0: so there's a lot of that you know robin williams was still uh, a bit novel at the time this movie i think gracelessly but nevertheless repeatedly panders in certain ways that have always been popular like oh the blue noses don't like the outrageous guy that will always be a popular setup you the, know the,
1: okay the lieutenant character who's one of the principal antagonists played in this by movie. bruno
0: kirby yes and who's Bruno Kirby again? He was in Spinal Tap. He played the, the limo driver in that movie. I God, I wish remember.
1: we'd watched that. Yeah. It's pretty funny. I saw it before Christmas. Good movie. I wasn't being facetious earlier when I said this is just the same movie as Patch Adams. This character, the LT, is the exact same character as the censurious doctor in Patch Adams. And he literally gives a speech where he dresses down not only Kronauer, but also all the other junior officers who think who have the audacity to think is shtick is funny and he says I hate that you guys never salute me you know that's what being a lieutenant is all about
0: so just like pandering
1: pandering pandering. like the antagonist that a film like this sets up you know or Patch Adams or anything like this the antagonists are these total fucking straw men and then you know the other style of character in in this movie and in Patch Adams is and I'm sure Dead Poets Society which will probably come too soon I've never seen it there is one other type of character which is the character often the love interest who resists Robin Williams Williams' shtick, and then eventually is sort of broken down. in In Patch Adams, it's Monica Potter's character. It's Philip Seymour Hoffman who's like, "Oh, sir, you be clown the august profession of medicine," and then at the end is like, "I need your laughter to save my patient's life." This movie's full of people like that as well. And just like the antagonist characters, yeah, they're literally just one dimensional cutouts. God, I hated this movie.
0: And the other thing that this movie does that I'm sure struck a chord was when it brings down the hammer of. Dro- and pathos. This was part of a wave of commercially successful Vietnam War movies of the mid to late 80s. Uh, not all the same in quality. Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, this movie. Uh, movies that were sort of 15 or 20 years later. You know, the national dream factory reckoning with this national trauma. And, uh,
1: yeah, or pretending to. Or, pre- yeah, or, pre- yeah. or pretending yeah, to. Yeah.
0: And this movie, which, you know, the first 60 or 70 minutes of it are basically just laughs and shenanigans. Then it starts bringing in you know a couple of very heavy duty scenes of you know viet Cong attacks and american war atrocities to say but you know what it wasn't all fun and games and and you know what maybe our intentions were good but you know maybe some shit got fucked up in the south pacific and that you know in contrast with robin williams comedy like this this was kind of the secret sauce for him for a long time that mixture of really broad comedy with really broad sentiment and drama
1: yeah what if you had a movie that you know yeah it's funny, it makes you laugh, but it's also got a bit of heart, and more importantly, most importantly of all, some would say, it makes you think.
0: And in a way that is not challenging at all.
1: I want to come back to uh, Roger Ebert's comically pedestrian observation you read off the top, where it's like, if you want to really get the heartbeat of a movie, ask yourself, how does the main character change from the beginning to the end?
0: I was asking myself that as I was watching this movie. Yeah, and
1: and the answer is, he does not change. He's the exact same guy. There's almost no conflict or tension in this movie, like, uh, even the kind of atrocity footage that it shows, even the violence that it kind of gestures at, feels kind of perfunctory. It's just kind of thrown in. And it's all subordinate and secondary to the real thesis of the film, which I'm going to come to at the end. But, you know, the tension in this movie is, yeah, first the powers that be uh, don't want him to be on the radio. And then that's quickly dispensed with the LT goes to the colonel or the sergeant major or whatever and is like, sir, this man has got an irreverent tendency. That's actually the line in the movie.
0: An irreverent tendency. An
1: irreverent tendency. And, you know, that's quickly dispensed with because the colonel is actually pretty kindly and he's like, oh, but son, the troops love him, you know, like, I don't know what they taught you at West Point, but when I was there, I learned to laugh or, you know, whatever. So that's quickly dispensed with. Then there's a thing where, uh, oh, uh, maybe he's going to lose his sense of humor when he finds out that war is hell. Uh, and that kind of happens for a second. There's a bar or a restaurant that he's constantly going into. You know, it's like something that
0: uh, U.S. servicemen uh, like to frequent. It's called Jimmy's, by the way. And I'm sorry, just a very brief digression. It's presided over by a Vietnamese businessman who speaks sort of pidgin English and wears garish Western style suits. And I thought the status of that character was very interesting because he's sort of depicted as like a bit of a freak.
1: I think it, I think it's totally played for laughs. Like I think it's just,
0: like the movie is like lightly contemptuous of this character it's like oh look at this Vietnamese man the movie has who panders to the westerners and tries to adopt our customs
1: yeah that's right but his sort of quaint bucolic South Asian sensibilities aren't really up to snuff yeah this movie is pretty condescending and at times uh, I think pretty much explicitly racist in its attitude towards the Vietnamese people there's a scene where uh, Robin Williams is refusing to eat food that's put in front of him because he's like well I don't know what's in this is there anything Thing, you know being sold in this market that's not going to give me diarrhea and it's like yeah. oh yeah you know that famously disgusting cuisine that people around the world don't like uh vietnamese food i mean give me a fucking break that's some real
0: classic it's 80, li- 80, it's, 80s guy comedy material it's,
1: it's literally like oh asian people eat dogs it's just S- sushi it's like, what's this raw fish yeah it's so fucking stupid now there's another possible tension that's introduced. As I was saying, you know, Williams' character, he gets a little bit sad and he refuses to go on the radio for like five minutes. Then he gets his, you know, Stella gets gets her groove back and he's back on. He's doing the jokes. There's a scene where the Forrest Whitaker character, I'm not going to bother to look up his name. I don't care. One of Robin's little sycophants, though. Yeah, he's he's like, uh, you got to go back on the radio. The chron- world chron- needs hour. laughter. People, people, we need you. And, you know, they're driving in a Jeep uh, through the streets of Saigon. He's like i can't man i'm spent and they get up to some gi's or something and he's like guys look who i have in the car it's craw now. And he's like oh you bastard you're dead i don't want to do this and they're like do the catchphrase do it say good morning vietnam do it And he's like oh oh fine like i'm not a wind-up toy but okay and then it turns yeah he is a fucking wind-up toy he does he says the phrase once and then there's like fucking 10 10 straight minutes of him just riffing he's loving it he's forgot about the explosion at jimmy's restaurant that happened earlier and he's like okay yeah i can laugh again so no tension there There's also the love interest, which is another part of this movie that's just, I mean, this is as nasty and rancid as the Monica Potter storyline in Patch Adams. The instigating event of what's supposed to be the romantic plot is that Cronauer sees a random woman biking down the streets of Saigon and he's like, oh, I I have to get in her pants. How do I do that? Can I use laughs to get in her pants? There's literally nothing more to it than that. There's no like spark of romance. Like, fuck, there's no hack screenwriter thing that they could have done where it's like, oh, there's a chance encounter. They're passing on the street. She falls off her bicycle like he helps her. Like, I don't know, anything. There's nothing like that so the movie having set up that it's just like oh he's just decided that he has to pester and bother this random Vietnamese woman who he's like caught out of the corner of his eye and thinks is attractive having set it up like that it then spends the rest of the time being like oh look at how pure his interest in her is like he's just like oh I just I just want to be friends like he's
0: such a, a fucking creep that when he's following her she's going to an English class with a bunch of other Vietnamese people and he bribes his way into teaching the English class by saying oh i have two months to live and i i always wanted to teach a class and then he he takes over the class and he starts teaching all of these vietnamese people slang yeah, he
1: doesn't teach language he doesn't teach the english language he teaches like regionally specific american idioms and that's what's
0: racist about this movie actually <laughs> aside from the most obvious moments of racism like the food scene what's racist is the movie's assumption that like oh yeah robin williams is just gonna like take over this english class that vietnamese people are going to and they'll they'll be fine. With they,
1: they, not only are they fine with it they lap it up
0: right like they're not there at that class for like any practical reason yeah, they're, they're
1: loving it they're like when he teaches them what the phrase flip the bird means they all can't stop saying flip the bird I guess there's no idioms in Vietnamese they they now have that here like that's yeah. the implication
0: these Robin Williams movies make me want to earnestly and unironically say lord give me the confidence of a mediocre white man <laughs> <laughs>
2: someone is not telling the truth, you say that they are full of... G-ish. G-ish. <laughs> okay, if someone is making you angrier and angrier, therefore you have... Me to- me off. Off me off. <laughs> okay, do so others if you can. All right. Let's see. If you say that, hey, some people in the car, some gypsies, they cut you off. All of a sudden, you... Yeah,
1: so we won't go through all of it. There's some more bullshit with the romance plot and the language class, the uh, Learn American Slang 101 class. He just keeps teaching it. He keeps teaching it. I don't know where the other guy that was teaching it uh, went. Hope these people aren't
0: paying for the class.
1: Yeah, and it's like, I don't really know what this class is supposed to be because it's clearly being offered by the army. Like, wh- like I don't know. Is that is that a thing? Was that a thing? I don't really know. But after he attends the first class, which is, again, just so that he can like pester and bother and like neg this random woman into liking him, He's accosted by another pupil who, it turns out, does not like him and is uh, her brother, but you know, Robin Williams' character being completely pure of heart. And and funny. And ver- and just so fucking funny. Who can resist? He thinks to himself, well, if I befriend the brother, maybe that'll maybe maybe he's a way into her pants. Again, I pure, mean, that is
0: pure of heart. That is
1: literally what the movie shows you, and it and it's it's like, oh no, no, he's a really good person whose intentions are honorable and pure.
0: And it's a star-crossed romance. You know, they they share so much in common, but uh, they're driven apart by, by war.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he goes on a date where he's subjected to the, you know, very primitive dating custom of like her entire family is there. That's played for some laughs. He pays for something. Someone offers to pay him back. And he's like, oh, what's one thirteenth of a dollar between friends? You get it? Because Vietnamese money is worth less, folks. It's a poor country. There's a really funny thing where the brother at one point is like, oh, you should come to my village. It's nearby and you can like see how we live. And then there's some, I don't know, weepy bullshit there where there's like a crying baby. Uh, we
0: see some... people whose families were killed by American bombs. Yeah, yeah. You know? So the film is gesturing at that. There's a crying baby. And they're all
1: laughing at there's Robin. A, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, like decades they, they of accumulated uh, intergenerational trauma brought to them first by the French empire and then by the American one. And it's just healed immediately by Robin Williams putting like, I don't know a garbage bin lid on his head and doing a silly voice and you know the baby's tears and and the cultural trauma of which they
0: are symbolic are instantly wiped away and vanquished by laughter beyond that a lot of the film's drama comes from the off mic politics of the radio broadcast Robin Williams's character is broadcasting from a base where uh, the other shows are kind of right-wing and Christian and they play <laughs> Pat Boone music and <laughs> yeah. uh the Bruno Kirby lieutenant character is, you know, saying this is this is just too unorthodox. You you have to go. He he doesn't under he's not a man of the world. He doesn't understand humor.
1: He's so dim-witted that he thinks humor is when you do like puns using the names of various like jazz and pop luminaries. So he's saying I'm going to stand gets me some laughs oh it would be a shame if i went to war and someone shot me and i got al hurt and you know so he doesn't understand that comedy is actually fast talking and silly voices
0: the exact same jokes but at two times right exactly
1: and i and i swear to god this is how much of a straw man this character and the sensibility he's supposed to represent actually is the thing that he wants to put on the radio yeah it's pat boone it's also polka he wants to put polka on the usaf radio so that's what the like straw man prudish sensibility this movie is setting itself in opposition to it's like these guys wanted to put polka on the radio they don't want to hear subversive shit like the cow sills singing i love the flower girl or i don't know fucking steppenwolf doing magic carpet ride or whatever the fuck yeah
0: (laughs) come on baby light my (laughs) fire and then beyond that (laughs) a lot of the drama comes from the the education of an idealist uh, yes yes uh, robin williams discovers that war folks it ain't all laughs yeah, we come to what this movie is actually about there's atrocities uh, on both sides yeah.
1: folks he gets he gets man like inevitably at a certain point he's actually sent to the front which i don't really understand what happens here
0: because he's supposed us get some of that white phosphorus that's what i say he's, he's
1: supposedly like in the air force and it's like the, i don't know what this mission is where it's like it seems like out of some malice he's assigned to this place where you know uh, let's just say there's a lot of charlies in this particular region of the country it's uh it's a little bit hairy uh not really sure what the mission he's on is but him and forrest whitaker like they're just i don't know what objective they're supposed to be pursuing but they're just driving in a jeep down like a random road in the middle of the jungle and they're just telling jokes to each other and then yeah they hit a fucking landmine or something and they managed to avoid, you know, the Viet Cong, who I, w- I was hoping the Viet Cong were just going to come up and just, like, machine gun them, and that was going to be the end of it. Unfortunately, they escape. Now, why do they escape? Uh, it's because Tuan, the brother of Trin, the love interest... Uh, he's somehow made his way, uh, like, I don't know, four or 500 kilometers north from Saigon, uh, apparently on foot into just some random part of the jungle where they are. And he, uh, brings them back, uh, from behind enemy lines. And as they're standing in a field and this helicopter approaches, they're waving to it. I thought for sure. And I think both of us did. This is building to, ah, we're going to see that, you know, the Americans are the real villains here because the helicopter is going to like start shooting at them or something. No, it just picks them up, yes. takes them back to Saigon. It's all fine. And then and then we come to the twist.
0: Yeah, the twist is that this this brother character who <laughs> Robin Williams became friends with, learned all about Vietnamese culture and cuisine with, uh-huh. uh, got to see that the enemy actually has a human face. Yeah, he's
1: not Tuan, he's one fan toe and he's, he's and he's a bad hombre. He's he's Viet Cong, folks.
0: <laughs> and Robin Williams says, You're Viet Cong, you, you you betrayed me. How can this be? And then uh He has a
1: weepy rejoinder. Or a weepy it's
0: rejoinder like, of like you, you people come to my country and you kill you kill our people you know the kind of action movie speech where it's like we're not so different you and (laughs) i mr schwarzenegger what about american imperialism have you ever thought about that but then then robin williams is like you know we're here to help your country that's
1: his that's his big like comeback And it's like, hey, look, we may have aired a little bit, like we dropped too much napalm. But it's like, you had no excuse to blow up Jimmy's Cafe. Well, this is
0: why this is a great like 80s boomer liberal movie, because the movie is like, yeah, you know, he went, he's hanging out with the Vietnamese. It's great. He acknowledges the Vietnamese are people, but it's like, he's not, he's not Hannaway Jane over here. That's right.
1: Fundamentally, he looks down on them. And fundamentally, the perspective this movie has on the Vietnam War is that it was, you know, fundamentally like a war undertaken on the basis of good intentions that was, you know, fundamentally unwinnable. And, you know, actually the problem was, you know, the excessive idealism uh, involved in it.
0: As well as the officer class comes under fire a little bit for censoring the news. That's right. They
1: didn't want people to listen to the Doors uh, who were dropping the napalm. They wanted the napalm guys to be listening to Pat Boone and the best of polka.
0: But like if there was a Viet Cong attack, Robin's not able to announce it on the radio. It's constantly censored. And he's like, man, man, how about how about the the actual news you know <laughs>
1: yeah yeah
0: how about we report
1: and they decide yeah and when he replies to fan ducto you know we're here to help this country the point the movie's making is like yes but this country is not ready for your good intentions it's too traumatized too primitive it's too it's too violent as a society like they're just not ready and that is uh, fundamentally what this movie is about. Now there is a fun little epilogue where you know eventually he's given I don't know an honorable discharge or something. Well, he's you know.
0: fired by one more uh, general <laughs> who says yeah. I don't like you, I don't like your style. We can't have laughter on the radio. Yeah, actually, it's, but the war the war is starting to turn. Johnson has said it's going to get worse before it gets better. So we have we we have to cut the laugh budget.
1: That, that's right. Yeah, there's actually one other funny thing we should talk about before the movie ends, which is director Barry Levinson. Also the director, by the way, of Man of the Year, which is also kind of the same movie as this and Patch Adams and is also in its own way a sort of education of an idealist kind of arc. It's not enough for the esteemed Mr. Levinson to force feed us the fact that uh, we're supposed to find Robin Williams funny by, you know, cutting to these faces of these guys like just keeled over laughing at his japes. That's not enough. Every time one of the prudish brass tries to shut down his little program, we also see scenes of this, like, room that they have at the radio station where there seems to be a whole room at the radio station where they have, like, I don't know, a complaints line. Like, I don't know what the fuck all these guys are doing for the rest of the day, but there's something where Forrest Whitaker is like, we've had over 1,100 calls today alone and they all want Cronauer back on the air. And it's like, I don't know, maybe there's a reason why you guys are losing, you
0: fucking... Well, all these guys are fielding radio call-in shows the communists are taking the north yeah and it's pretty comforting to think that a few years after this
1: movie's set they're all going to come down and occupy this fucking radio station as well (laughs) but i mean my god like if you step back and you consider what the stakes of this movie are that this all takes place in a u.s air force radio station where like the lieutenant guy who's the antagonist seems to be he's like second in command of the radio station like the officers aren't even like real officers like this movie like man of the air and Patch Adams fundamentally has no actual stakes. There's no gravity or weight to any of this.
0: Well, we get very little sense of what role does this radio station actually play in the war effort, uh, presumably because it plays none. <laughs> like 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 wh- yeah okay some of the troops like hearing robin williams do jokes like the movie doesn't exactly communicate like yeah, why does that matter yeah yeah who cares yeah who cares that some lieutenants were like humorless hard asses to robin williams you know while my lie was being massacred
1: and i'll t- i'll t- and i'll tell you why because the troops in this movie the people that robin williams is entertaining are also the audience for this movie Because the kind of people who like this movie and think it's profound are the kind of people who, yeah, it's 1987, 88, whenever this movie came out. They're ready to sort of have the conversation where they're like, oh, okay, like, yeah, maybe the Vietnam War wasn't such a good thing, but they're not actually they're still not actually willing or able to grapple with the mass imperial slaughter of the Vietnam War with the fact that America was the bad guy. So they need to have the whole experience mediated by, yeah, by Robin Williams, by a guy doing japes. Who then at the end of the movie, you know, they get to be Robin Williams. They get to hop on the plane and go home and say goodbye to all their Vietnamese friends that they've made throughout the movie, who've all been taught phrases like flip the bird, who've been taught uh, what baseball is. That's kind of one of the things we see right at the end of the movie. He teaches He teaches them baseball.
0: Yeah, what are they complaining about? They know baseball now.
1: Yeah, they know baseball. They know what
0: jokes are. They didn't have that before. That's worth at least a few torched villages, isn't yeah.
1: it? A few million peasants, a few decades of birth defects from chemical weapons. But yeah, they get to go on the plane and go home and they get to say, Hey, uh, you know, I watched this movie and I, I laughed, but also, you know, I learned a little something too. And if you're wondering how the, uh, what we're forced to call the romantic plot ends, I swear to God, right before he leaves, Trin comes up to him and she says, You so good person, I cannot be with you. So <laughs>
0: he gets on the plane goes back and and he's america in this parable that's right right. that's that's right and she's
1: vietnam you so good person i cannot Uh. be with you and then he gets on the plane and the movie ends and there's about like three or four straight minutes of just the plane flying off robin williams he's in the plane by himself i guess just doing more gags the man can't stop and i'm watching i'm like please let the plane blow up please (laughs) let the plane blow up please let it blow up yeah fuck this movie i hate it
2: all the people of old mississippi should all hang their heads in shame now i can't understand how their minds work what's the matter don't they watch last crane but if you ask me to boss my children i hope the cops take down your name so love me love me love me i'm a liberal Yes, I read New Republic and Nation I've learned to take every view You know, I've memorized Lerner and Golden I feel like I'm almost a Jew But when it comes to times like Korea There's no one more red, white and blue So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal I vote for the Democratic Party They want the UN to be strong I attend all the Pete Seeger concerts He sure gets me singing those songs And I'll send all the money you ask for But don't ask me to come on along So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Sure, once I was young and impulsive, I wore every conceivable pin. Even went to socialist meetings, learned all the old union hymns. Ah, but I've grown older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal.
0: But they used to tell us in writing class that if we wanted to know what a story was really about, we should look for what changed between the beginning and the end. It's such fucking faux faux wisdom.
1: (laughs) We should look at what changed between the beginning and the
0: end. (laughs) If if it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not funny.